0: This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM.
1: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our ongoing conversation to get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our full catalog of past shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow, and you'll find us. Also, please be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as me. At Laura Arrow. Today, I couldn't be more delighted to bring on our guest, Amber Cabral. Amber is an inclusion and diversity consultant who's just published her first book, Allies and Advocates Creating an Inclusive, Equitable Culture. In this highly accessible and comprehensive primer, Amber gives us a timely guide to understanding what allyship really is why it's so important, and simple but impactful steps that all of us can put to use, regardless of our individual identities. Amber, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited I just to be wanna... here. We're so glad to have you, and I just want to say a little bit more about you, and then we'll get started with the real conversation. Sure. So Amber is the founder and principal consultant at Cabral Company, a diversity and inclusion consulting firm. Formerly a senior strategist on the global culture diversity and inclusion team at Walmart stores, Amber's got years of experience developing and executing strategies that actually achieve transformational culture change. She hosts a podcast called You Can Have Whatever You Want, which I'm going to learn want to learn about later today. And she serves as the board chair of Brown Girls Do, best known for its ballet arm, Brown Girls Do Ballet, an organization committed to promoting diversity in the arts through annual scholarships, mentor network, dancer resources, and community programs to empower young women and girls all over the country. So Amber, welcome to Women at Work.
0: Thank you.
1: So let's start with the book. We have a lot to talk about, but I want to start there. What turned you into an author?
0: Oh my gosh, it's a great story. I actually tell the story in the book. (laughs) So I actually do a lot of teaching. I'm a facilitator, like most of the time, honestly, like I do a lot of strategy work, but the way I facilitate is apparently very unique to people. And so I get called a lot for that. So my staff and one of my business coaches essentially said like, you need to do this allyship course for everybody. Like you're doing it for businesses. It's flying off the shelves. Like you need to do it public facing. And I didn't do direct to consumer work. I only worked for businesses. And so I finally said, okay, well, I'll do one and let's see how it goes. And so I did. And it just so happened that the woman that joined, one of the women who joined was an acquisitions editor. And so she reaches out to me like right after, you know, the session on Instagram, like, I need to talk to you. (laughs) Like, you should be writing a book about this. And I'm like, what? You know, and it turned into a book. Honestly, I had to write it in like 45 days. It's the craziest thing I've ever done in my life, for sure.
1: (laughs) I was, as I read it, I was struck by what seemed like how you seized time, because as you told that story, 45 days to write a book. Were you confident in your ability to do this? Did you have to have that little like personal wrestling match to own it and step into it?
0: So I've always wanted to be a writer. It's always been a thing on my radar. I had no idea what the book would be about, but I knew there was a book in me. And so on one hand, it was like, just totally an honor. Like, oh my gosh, you want me to write a book? But the other side of it was like, I just had never thought about the work that I do in book format. I'd never considered it. And so it was a challenge and honestly, I, I mean she asked for 30 days and I was like, Well, can you give me 45? Because I was like, I've you know, I've work booked, you know, like I can't just like stop my life and write a book. And so what I ultimately ended up doing is like, it was really like 13 days. Like I took like my weekend. You're kidding me. Yeah. I took my weekends and like, in a few cases, like added a Monday and a Friday or a Monday or a Friday. And like, you know, occasionally I'd have a Wednesday afternoon because I realized really quickly, it wasn't a thing I could like, some people get up and write early and then write at night. And like, that wasn't me. So I had to have like concerted time. And so I just, you know, I gave all my weekends up in that period and added some like off days to it and it came out in like 13 days.
1: <laughs> oh my God, that is, that makes it even that much more impressive. And I love that you just said, like, here's like the brass ring. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to go for it.
0: Yeah. That was exactly how it happened. It was totally a thing I knew I wanted to do with my life. And I felt like, oh, here's the opportunity. Yes, it's a crazy time, but like, let's make it, let's just make it happen. So (laughs) I did.
1: (laughs) Okay. So now this makes the clarity and the approachability of the book that much more impressive. Because it seems like you had to channel a fire hose of all your expertise into, um translating it into really accessible language. How did you decide what you wanted your building blocks to be?
0: So the good thing is she'd seen this course and was like, this allyship course is it, like this is the book, right? And so I'm like, okay, but of course that was a 90 minute course. And I can tell you because I went and ran, you know the translator to get how many words 90 minutes is it's not enough for a book. So (laughs) I was like, okay, well that can't just be the book. And because I teach, like I, my um, graduate degree, my thesis was on adult learning theory. So I understand how adults learn, like it just in a very personal way. And so I bring that to the way that I teach and communicate and all of that around the work that I do. And so what I did is I went through and thought about the courses that had the content that resonated, and then I figured out how to organize it in the book. And so... I feel like some of that clarity existed just because of what I do, but it's still really different teaching a class and like writing a book. There's so much we communicate in our body language and in our voices and all of that that just doesn't come through unless you actually put it into the print. And so I had to think about that as I was writing. So the good thing is that adds additional words. And so, I mean, (laughs) it helped to pull the book together, but... It wasn't just as simple, which I thought it was going to be of just going back and listening to my previous trainings and saying, OK, this is organized well, let's put it in a book. It doesn't come across the same way. You have to think about, OK, for an adult learner, for a reader, how is this going to resonate? And so um, I don't know. I just knew I wanted the book to, to land and be great. And so <laughs> I, I pulled all the tools, resources, content that I created like over the last couple years and just tried to work to put it in a way that felt like it would be digestible for people
1: so this also explains something that i felt through the book oh good Um, one of the many reasons why i admire teachers is i feel like teachers um i don't know if it's part of their call um, to the work that they do it's a natural gift they have if it's taught in graduate programs but it's a way that they learn to find the possibility in every student and love every student and embrace them all and there's um dare I say, an inclusiveness in how you talk to all of us, the readers in your book. Yeah. How much of that is that's how you help us learn? And how much of that is how we learn about these very topics?
0: Yeah, it's both. Um, I would probably say it's 50-50. I I am very purposeful, particularly around this topic, when you're talking about inclusion and diversity and identity and like, this is stuff that's like hairy. And so what I try to do is make sure that I don't ever apply a shaming tone. I think it's very easy for people to fall into shaming Mm -hmm. um, and to end up, you know, this isn't the right way, you know, and I just don't, I know learners don't learn that way. And so I try to package things in ways that feel very digestible and, you know, inviting and like kind of friendly and like all of those things, because I recognize that, um, without it feeling that way, you won't get through the material. So it's both, it's both me knowing how learners learn and also knowing that we're talking about something that's ugly. Right. And I can't do the uncomfortable ugly stuff in a really mean you know conversational <laughs> way it has to be you know purposefully done you know it, you know with with care so to speak
1: so is that as a way as a place to start can we take from that that when we're trying to learn how to have these conversations that are complicated they're scary um, that a kind of kindness in how we communicate with each other might be a first
0: step Yes, I mean, I think I try to explain in the book that you have to approach people with care, you have to think about it from the standpoint of, if this was someone that I cared the most about, how would they hear this message, you know, how would I want them to hear the message, and I think particularly, I mean, right now, I mean, while we're dealing like a racial reckoning across the globe, really, I mean, definitely in the U.S., but like here in the U.S., like, you know, it's, specifically race but around the globe the conversation is happening mm-hmm. right and so everyone's a little heightened everyone's a little sensitive everyone has like a little rub or something that is going to alarm them or cause them you know to kind of react and so I think if we all take the care of what if this were my favorite person in the world what is this or my child or you know in my case it's my little sister like how would I want them to hear this and so I do think approaching things with that care is important I will also say it's important to understand when people don't have the capacity because there are going to be times where like, it's just too emotional. It's just been too much in the media. It's just been too much conversation about it that I just don't have the bandwidth to like hold myself in that really nice space that like the folks around you still have to be able to give you grace to listen through the frustration and the anger and the discomfort so that we can get to an appropriate like solution, right? So it's, I tried to frame the book in a way where people understand that the responsibility rests on all of us. And mm-hmm. so if we can all put our, our hats on, you know, and do our piece, and your piece may change, right? Like, but <laughs> you know, we can all do that. It can help the conversations go forward and be impactful and actually shift the thing that we're trying to shift, which is inequity. So um, yeah, it, it, is, it is about, to some degree, being nice. Like when you have the capacity, please bring your kind self. <laughs>
1: For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132, and I'm your host, Laura Zarrow. My guest today is Amber Cabral. She's the CEO of the Cabral Company and the author of Allies and Advocates: Creating an Inclusive, Equitable Culture, a new book out on Wiley Press. So, Amber, in when we talk about just gender issues, never mind intersectionality, and very specifically issues of race, how much of the work that you're doing and that you're trying to help us do is about changing the system versus changing our own behavior
0: yeah it's wow like that's a tough question it really depends almost all the work i do is about changing both the only way you change the system is by changing your behavior there just really isn't yeah the the the, (laughs) The mechanism isn't going to function without us doing the things. So if we want the mechanism to be different, we have to do different things. And so I take the approach directly in addressing the way we treat each other, the way we communicate, the ideas we hold about our you know, beliefs, the, the way we communicate that stuff. And so I try to teach humans to be better humans to other humans and do so with the lens of, I'd like to bring you along and include you, even if I don't necessarily agree. Now,
1: go ahead. That has a particular um, potential for ripple effect, though, because you're doing this not just with a lot of individuals, but you're doing it in large organizations in corporate settings.
0: Yes. And so that's purposeful. The intention is my expectation when I start working with a client is that you've already done the data like you know what percentage of your you know staff are women and how many people of color you've gotten or if you're going to think about tracking veterans or you know lgbtq identities like my expectation is that you have some sense of those things but what you're struggling with is like okay we've got the mix or we know we need to work on the mix but like the mix isn't working (laughs) like you know people are not you know communicating with each other we're not seeing promotions happen we're not doing good on retention you know or whatever that is and so when I'm coming in what I'm doing for that organization is helping them to kind of really reevaluate their foundational way of treating one another. What does it mean to be valued here? What does it mean to be, you know, seen safe and heard, right? And being purposeful about the actions around that so that we can work on it together. So like we might not be able to get inclusion to happen at my local grocery store today but I can get like a good amount of the folks in my neighborhood on board because they work at my job, you know, or we're hopping on Zoom together and we're being thoughtful about the way we interact. Like it is, that is how you change the system. The system changes by us being different in it. And so I that's the one of the things I love about my job is like, you know, I get to bring in these ideas that people can say, oh my gosh, we're doing that now, you know, we're inserting that perspective, we're interrupting this kind of thought by, you know, taking some of the tips you've given us, and so now as you learn to communicate in that environment, you take it home, right, and then the folks you live in your homes would take it wherever they go, you know, and that's how the systems start to change. So let me see if I can relate to that a little bit, because
1: as our, as you know, as our listeners know, I've been trying really hard to learn as much as I can about how to step into allyship, how to become anti-racist, how to own it in myself and translate it into my work every day. Um, and, um, and I may be missing a lot, but I've noticed that in my dialogue with my teenage daughter, mm. I'm becoming, she's also... Um, extremely attentive to language Mm -hmm. let's say just the use of pronouns I feel like it's the work in both places is helping me become more sensitive about how to listen and I find though that in many of my conversations I am confronted where I used to be the one who had all the answers um, discovering how much I don't know and how often I misstep yeah I'm occasionally embarrassed. I feel bad. I've said things that might were unintentionally offensive, but she's catching me. Um, How much of that is part of what we're supposed to be experiencing and doing?
0: It's totally what it go, what it feels like. I tell people all the time. I make mistakes all the time. I do things. I put my foot in them in my mouth. And so, like the purpose of the book, the objective of allies and advocates is to both give you some insight into the ways that you need to be better, but also give you the resources to navigate getting there. So, how do you properly apologize? How do I, you know, fix a mistake that I made? How do I make sure? that I am putting myself in the position to be corrected and not being defensive about it because you're going to make mistakes you're going to misgender people you're going to call folks by the wrong names like that's going to happen and so how do you navigate the world where you're going to do a lot wrong and so that's huge that's a big part of being an ally is being okay with the possibility that I'm going to need correction and i think that allyship is one of the only places in our lives that we have to do that. Like once you get to adulthood, you're kind of right a lot, you know? So (laughs) you just don't encounter these, you know, these experiences of needing correction or nudging and like to be an ally, you have to be okay with that. I have to be okay with it. And so, and you also have to take ownership too. And so I try to, in the book, make sure that I would give you resources and tactics to help you navigate those specific kinds of scenarios, because if you're doing it right, you're getting corrected. You're learning new things.
1: So I wanna ask, I wanna circle back to that notion. Like as grownups, we're accustomed to being right a lot. Yes. I might translate that into, we're accustomed to feeling like we're right a lot. Correct. And that in the way we interact with each other, sometimes it may be our partners, it could be our friends, definitely our colleagues. um, How we call each other out on it, how we hold each other accountable, varies a lot from workplace to workplace. How much of what we need to learn and act, and it's can learn by reading the book um, is about how we invite that versus how we give that?
0: Yeah, it's those are two huge parts of allyship. Giving feedback and giving and getting feedback are really important. Here's the thing. Because we're adults, we have this thing that we call being politically correct. And so we navigate certain environments, certain ways, and we allow people to do really silly things that we really should speak up about, like walk around with, you know, lettuce or lipstick on their teeth, right? And <laughs> we don't say anything because it feels uncomfortable. And I don't want to call this person out. And, I, you know, I feel a little embarrassed. And it's not necessarily a politically correct way for me to do that. Allyship asks you to get over yourself. Like it's like, yeah, like (laughs) that's not going to work, right? Like you are, your political correctness is creating failures of safety. You know, you're, you're wanting to be comfortable is really causing some folks to have to be really uncomfortable, right? And so let's get over this idea that like comfort really even exists. I mean, we've all been surviving 2020. It's like not real. Like 20, like <laughs> we have moments of it in our bathtubs, perhaps, you know, but like in the right. great scheme of things, this is a really uncomfortable like year, you know? So get over yourself and like be okay with the correction. The other thing too is, you don't learn what you're doing well or what you're doing badly by not doing the things. Like you just don't have any idea like where your thoughts and ideas need to be challenged. And so the feedback part of that is really important. We want people to tell us like, hey, I'm not sure that that landed well, or you know, maybe this isn't the right approach because it's the only way that sometimes we'll get the information in to go, oh, that's not quite right. Like I had to correct a woman recently about, she referred to me as exotic. And I was like, not quite appropriate language there. I know generationally that probably was a good fit for her. like she was, you know, from a previous generation than I am. And so, you know, for her, it felt like a compliment, but I had to like, let her know like, yeah, you can't really walk up to folks and say they look exotic.
1: So so hearing you, tell me why that's not a compliment.
0: Yeah, um, because exotic feels like fetishism. It feels like you are looking at me like I'm some unusual, you know, animal. You are <laughs> other. Yeah I'm, uh, yeah, I'm something that you don't normally see or I'm strange in some way, which is exactly what you said, it's othering. And so I'm not, like, I'm still, you know, a human. I may have a different skin tone than you. My hair texture may be different, but like th- we live in a world where it is not necessary for you to put me in the position of feeling like I have to be different because now- How do I feel included there, you know, because you've essentially put me in this little space. And so we have to be really cautious about the language that we use to describe people. And I personally, to speak specifically about exotic, like exotic to me feels like an like it's not human, right? It feels like I was grown in this little strange patch of aliens somewhere. right? right? Like, and, like an exotic locale. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so I, I just can't appreciate that like growing up as a black woman in Detroit, Michigan, which is the blackest city in the nation, someone calling me exotic feels like I don't fit there. And I'm like, no, like so much of my identity is wrapped up in that. And like, You know, we have to realize that we get to decide our identities, not what other folks project on us. So it is important that I push back on things like exotic because it can be received as though I don't belong, when really I do and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to create a sense of belonging. Does that mean that everyone's going to feel the same all the time? No but in the ways that we can, you know, let's not have people purposefully feel like they're, you know, on the outside right. of the industry. So
1: instead of as a white woman, my saying you look exotic, which signals that you look different than me. And you're so different that I'm going to try and give you what I think is a positive word. How about I just start with your beautiful?
0: Yes. <laughs> you're beautiful would be great. <laughs> like that's a, that's a very welcome. And, and it's what you would say to someone who didn't look like me, that you thought was beautiful. Right. And so like, treat me that way. Now, of course, as we get to know each other, you know, we begin to build a relationship, we can get into some of the more intricacies of my identity and like what you find interesting about my appearance, because we've built some credibility. But before that, like, yeah, like conversation one, two, and three, let's not get into exotic. Like it's it's kind of a little <laughs> offensive. Um, and it feels like I'm being othered. So
1: now let's talk about, because you do a beautiful section on that words matter, language matters. So now let's talk about, because this is something my daughter's helped me learn a tremendous amount about, is pronouns. Yeah. Why, in reverse, is using someone's own designated pronouns so important?
0: Yeah, it's because that you help someone feel seen. I try to tell people, like, so inclusion is about, you know, do I feel welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard? You know, if I feel welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard, then I am more likely to work for you, to connect with you, to do what it is I'm here to do, and do it in a meaningful and impactful way. And what pronouns do are are the same for everyone. I am being called the way that I identify. So when someone says Amber to me, I'm going to respond. When someone says she to me, I'm going to respond. If someone says he to me, I'm going to look at you and go, what? (laughs) Like, where did that come from? Right. Right. And so it doesn't fit. And so what we have to remember about pronouns um, and names, even like, you know, it's really just how people call themselves is that we don't get to do the decision making. Just like, you know who you are. I know who I am. And so when I tell you this is how you should call me, you should agree to that. And if that evolves and changes, remember Sometimes our names evolve and change, right? Like we change our minds about what we want to be called from when we're children to when we're adults to when we're married, you know? And so giving people the grace to say, this is how I'd like to be called is really important. And it helps people feel those things that we say are connected to inclusion, welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard. And so if I'm giving you those things, I'm intentional about calling you in a way that matches the way you see yourself. I want to
1: slow down. You said that phrase and it's really important. It rolls off your tongue, but I want us to spend a moment connecting the dots between those words and the concept of diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Yeah. So map, welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard to those concepts for us.
0: Sure, absolutely. And I'm gonna add one thing in there um, toward the end that I think is important around comfort because you'll notice I did not say comfort, (laughs) okay? so (laughs) um, Inclusion means that someone we are doing the work to make sure that someone feels welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard. Welcomed meaning they can come to this place and they do not have to worry about if anyone is going to even acknowledge them, right? They're going to feel, welcome we know how we welcome people into spaces right so that's part of inclusion the second one valued i want to hear what you have to say i care about you contributing i notice when you don't okay um seen safe heard those i say pretty quickly together because they're kind of connected right you see me meaning you will call me by the right pronouns right you recognize my identity um safe meaning i am okay to show up here in the fullness of who i am i get to determine how much or how little but i am safe to do it i don't have to worry about someone attacking me or you know making me feel like i'm less than you know human in some way and then heard meaning that when i speak up someone is going to acknowledge that what i had to say was worth you know sh- being shared right i have a voice at the table that is what inclusion is about now inclusion belonging is how you you know is is what you get to when you do the inclusion stuff all right, right. that's an output right? And so if I can do those inclusion things, people will have a sense of belonging. So that's how those words connect. Now, diversity is just the differences among us, which is why we need inclusion. So we have to be intentional and purposeful about having people feel welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard. I have to be deliberate about it. And so that's saying, I see the diversity in you, and now I want to connect to it. I want to bring you in. What I'd like to say that, you know, you didn't necessarily ask about, but I think it's so important is that this isn't comfortable. Not at all. (laughs) Yeah, it's not, it's not comfortable. We make the mistake of thinking that inclusion and belonging and all of these things are warm and fuzzy and harmonious and they are not. They take labor. Sometimes you are going to make someone feel welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard that you don't agree with. I don't see it that way. I don't think that's right, but you still wanna bring them in. My guest today is Amber Cabral. She's the founder and principal consultant
1: at Cabral Company, a diversity and inclusion consulting firm. And she's also just published a book on Wiley Press called Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive, Equitable Culture. For those of you who are new to this dialogue, highly recommend it because it really takes you from zero to 60. It introduces the concepts. It walks you through how to put them to use in really actionable ways. And for those of you who may have been dwelling in this space for a while, there's still a lot to learn from it so pick it up meanwhile amber welcome back to the show thanks one of the things you were helping us understand and explore is that we want to get to this um almost this work utopia of inclusion and belonging it, it shouldn't be as out of reach as utopia but we've been trying to get there for a long time and it's hard um one of the things that you mentioned was that we may encounter people for whom they don't know how to wrap their heads around this. They haven't started their journey yet. And I wanted to tap into a part of the book that I found really moving and really useful, which was the framing of what's the context in which we're doing this work when we dial back and look at it over time. And you gave a couple of really poignant statistics. So there were 246 years of legalized slavery, Mm -hmm. 89 years of legalized segregation, 66 years since legalized segregation was made illegal, that's actually been systemic oppression, which means that anybody who has been alive in that time, who predated those changes, um, the world had to change within their lifetime which means they had to change too which is often not an easier automatic task so for people who were told when they were children that this was right or normal or it was just presented to that way and they haven't yet moved onto the arc of change when we're doing this work How do we deal with that? When I go to, you know, Thanksgiving dinner and encounter that, I'm embarrassed to say in my own family, what do we do with that?
0: Yeah, it's tough. Um, first things first recognize that it's going to be uncomfortable. That's part of it. Like it's this work is not easy. And so it's going to feel weird. (laughs) Um, and often we're more uncomfortable talking to people we care about than we are with, you know, strangers, because you're going to walk away from a stranger. It's over. But like, when you care about someone, you're like, gosh, they got to come back for like birthdays, you know, or whatever. (laughs) So you know, just keeping in mind that it's going to be uncomfortable. That's a normal part of the process. The second thing is like, ask really good questions. Like, you know, when someone says something that, just doesn't gel with you, or is contrary to the knowledge that you've gained, or you know, just really just is discriminatory in some way. Ask a question, and so a really good one to ask is, hmm, "Say more about that," because what happens is that person plays it back in their brain, and they'll like try to add additional context, or they'll catch it and they'll go, "Oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud, right?" So, I I try to encourage people to ask probing questions. Like one of the things I hear often kind of in that same vein that you're in is like, you know, oh, you know, this is all political. And so I will, you know, just very pointedly ask like, oh, well, what, what part of identity is political for you? And people often freeze, like they're like, identity, wait, that's me. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know if I'm saying that. I, wait a minute, I'm not sure if I agree. And so when you frame it, you know, like in these really purposeful ways, or you ask really meaningful questions, what it does is it interrupts someone's like belief system and causes them to like critically think about it and like critically have to challenge. Now, sometimes this results in people getting really mad and like storming off or whatever, but you never know how you are impacting their behavior later. So they might've screamed on you and been really frustrated, but like, they're going to go on the rest of their lives thinking, you know, I don't know if that's quite right because you challenge something. And so it's still worth it to do it. Um, But it is hard and it is awkward and uncomfortable. I'm currently coaching a couple of folks now that are like dealing with like their spouses having a certain mindset and like their mindset is changing. And like, how do I have this conversation to bring my, this is my life partner, you know, along. And so, you know, the the best tool in your arsenal is find you a good couple questions. There are a few in the book (laughs) that you can, pull out and use to kind of just interrupt those, you know, these are habits. They're not actually purposeful thoughts, they're habits. And so we can interrupt them by asking good questions.
1: It's interesting. You're It's like you're deploying a mechanism from how we can have difficult conversations by kind of inverting what would be the, do you realize you're doing this to asking a question about why as a way of prompting self-reflection? Yes. In the book, though, you also talk about another way of asking questions that's not about how we're asking somebody else to ponder something and change, but it's for us to really learn to listen. Why is that so important and what can we do to start to become better listeners?
0: Yeah, listening. We suck at listening, (laughs) like as a whole. There are people listening to this conversation, and therefore, you think you are a good listener. And I have news for you, listener: you are not. (laughs) We are all really bad at it. Um, So we often listen for like the what to do. We don't listen well for like just understanding, right? We tend to, particularly as adults, like when we're in our you know uh, formative years and we're you know like in school, like we tend to do a bit more of listening to understand but like as an a, an adult that's just out in the world navigating life and making decisions we don't do a good job of listening to just understand and so what i try to encourage people to do is like ask, be a confident listener. Like ask yourself in the moment, do I need to say this? Is it important for me to interrupt? Because what we tend to do is go, oh yeah, I understand what you're t- talking about. You know, yesterday this happened to me. And what we're really saying to that person that we're listening quote unquote to is I'd like you to stop talking now. Cause I have something I'd like to share. And so <laughs> like, let's not do that. Let's be intentional and say, okay, this is something different than what I've heard before what can I ask about it to get more information? That is what we should have in our brains. We are not used to doing that the world moves really quickly so we tend to believe we don't have time to do that but like intentional and purposeful listening helps you to get the context for why someone has the point of view they have what we tend to do is jump into why our point of view is different and why we are seeing the world differently and why your point of view isn't right instead of actually saying wait a minute let me just listen so that i can see it the way you see it that's how we can get to empathy but we've got to practice that listening muscle
1: so when I think about um, why it's hard, challenges I've had myself in listening well and, and what I see in the people around me, I'd say if I put it on a spectrum from the benign to the um, kind of violent dialogue, yeah, um, as a therapist once explained to me, there's the I'm going to pretend that we're just taking turns talking and I'll let you say your stuff. And then I'll say my stuff. Like it's some like empty social dance. And I'm amused by hearing myself. Yeah. That's different than when I'm not listening to understand, but I'm listening to respond and the response is an attack. Yeah. Because we need to assert power, feel powerful, confirm our rightness. It seems to me like neither are good. Yeah. But we'd all benefit if we could fix either end of that spectrum. Mm -hmm. But in particular, in that kind of violent, like where it can feel like an attack in our dialogue, that's where it's like, we have to become better listeners, but we've got to cope with internal feelings that are making us want to push back.
0: Yes. How do we do that? (laughs) You practice. (laughs) (laughs) And does that mean we'll be clumsy while we practice? Yes, it's tough. It's hard. Like, I mean, when people like scream on me and it happens, like I make mistakes and people scream on me and like, I have to be quiet and listen. And guess what? When you realize that you did something to hurt someone's feelings, even when you don't understand all the way what you did wrong, you apologize for it. Apologies build bridges. Like it lets people kind of come down. So like what I'm usually doing is like when someone is at that explosion level frustration with me, What I'm trying to do is be really quiet and listen to what the concern is. And I will just sit and be quiet until they're like done yelling. And then what I'll say is, I apologize for going forward, I'll do this. And that person may say a few more upset words and then I'll say it again. I apologize for going forward. I do this. Now, does that mean that I completely get it or that I feel guilty or any of those things? No, we hang a lot of things on apologies that don't belong there. Sometimes an apology is just a bridge to moving the conversation forward. And if I can get that temperature to come down, then I can say, okay, what I heard you say was this. I'm not sure I understand that. Instead of saying, well, I don't think that that's right because blah, blah, blah. Frame it without putting your own ideas in it. Frame it as okay, I heard you say this and I'm not sure I follow. Can you give me more information there? And what happens is you invite people to share their stories and share their ideas and share their identities so that we can actually call people as we see them and as they actually want to be called, right? Like, and so, it's it's how we get to the meaningful dialogue that gives people that, you know, welcome, valued, seen, safe, heard, right? We've got to give folks room to go through the emotions. We've got to be okay standing as confident listeners and say, okay, it's not my turn to speak now. It's my turn to listen. Am I actively listening? What don't I understand? Okay, let me ask a question about that. Instead of like these leading things that we can do sometimes like, well, well, don't you think that that means blah, blah, blah? You know, like, no, 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 <laughs> not that way. So there's a, In a meaningful, I want to understand your story. Way. There's a lot
1: that you just laid out for us. And I want to back up for a minute to the apology. Yeah. Be, and you also write about this, that there's um, the, a difference between saying, Amber, I'm so sorry that I made you feel unseen. Mm-hmm. And that's different than, I'm sorry if what I did, like, I'm sorry if you felt unseen. Talk to me about those differences and how we can build into our responses the one that's really more sincere and effective.
0: Yeah, think about what you want when someone like wrongs you. Like what you want is, I want to know that you know what you did and I want to know what you're going to do next time because you broke it and I'd like you <laughs> to like not break it again. Right. So right. I think the best approach to an apology is to figure out what you are apologizing for and then tell someone what you are going to do going forward. I apologize. I mispronounced your name going forward. I'll make sure to say it correctly. Right. And we will rehearse and we will make mistakes, right? But I'm going to make a pointed effort to say your name correctly. And this can be for anything. There's so many terrible apologies out there. But really what we are looking for when someone apologizes is, do you know what you did? Can you articulate it? And then can you tell me what you're going to do instead? Because what you did isn't working. And so, you know, if I think about even some of the things we've heard in the news, you know, I apologize for my remarks about Black talent. Moving forward, I'll check my own biases before speaking publicly, right? And so, like it's it's not even about for me the the conditionals. Oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. I'm sorry if it came across like that. I'm you know like none of those are helpful. Like I don't want you to apologize for my feelings. I don't want you to apologize that there's an if or a maybe. I right. That's That's the key thing in there that I just want,
1: I'm sorry to interrupt you. No,
0: it's fine. Um, Or
1: I'm interrupting you for a reason because what you're saying is so important that I want to focus on a specific point in it, which is that the apology isn't for that I may have hurt you. It's that I'm apologizing for my behavior,
0: recognizing that it hurt you. Yes, it is taking ownership. And the thing is, that doesn't mean, again, You don't have to feel bad or guilty, you know, you don't have to necessarily completely understand, but if you care about the person you're talking to, if you want them to feel welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard, then you should be okay apologizing for the thing that took that away from them, okay? And so I don't always, you know, I had a friend uh, recently, we were on vacation together, you know, tell me, you know, your your, uh, questions sound like commands. Did I agree with that? Absolutely not. Like, I was like, no, that's not me. But I also know that if I want to enjoy this vacation with you, I need you to feel welcome, valued, seen, safe, and heard. And so what I said to him was, I apologize that my questions have sounded like commands. Moving forward, I'll be more responsible about how I speak to you because that's what I want our experience to be. It doesn't matter if I agree or not. What matters is that this is not something that's working for you. And if it's going to work for you, the first way I get there is by apologizing.
1: It's, it's removing whose ego you're trying to
0: protect. Correct. Removing
1: ego altogether because ego is
0: problematic, Like <laughs> right? Yeah, on
1: oh, yes. <laughs> a lot of levels. For those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work here on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Amber Cabral. She's the author of Allies and Advocates, Creating an Inclusive and Equitable Culture. So one of the other things that you talk about in the book, especially where you're talking about how we can have these conversations together is about speaking up and giving feedback. It's actually the thing that precedes often, hopefully and a functional apology. So how when we feel not seen, when we when it's time for us to speak up, not just to correct someone else's um, m- maligning someone else, but where it's about us how can we start to express ourselves in ways that honor what we're feeling, but are likely and are likely to be productive?
0: Yeah, speaking up is tough because we typically have a lot of emotions wrapped up in it. Like I've something's happened, I feel a way about it. Should I say something to you? Should I not? Um, or something is happening to you that could be fairly embarrassing. And I don't know if I should be the one to say anything about it. Um, the best thing to keep in mind about speaking up is, you know, one of the first things I talk about in the book is like, this is uncomfortable work. You're going to be uncomfortable. Please get over it. Like it's (laughs) a part of it. Like you're going to do it. It's going to happen all the time. You will just have to live with discomfort. It is a part of what makes us grow. And so like, if you want to grow, you have to lean into that. So that's the first thing before you can even get the words out. You've got to be okay. Like, Oh, this is going to be a little uncomfortable. Right. Okay. That's the first thing. And then the next thing is like, be a bit cautious and mindful about, you know, a few things like your tone, you know, your the, the energy that you use. So, you know, if, let's say you've heard something and you want to challenge like that thought perspective or mindset that you heard in that sentence. You know, one of the things that I do to the point, my friends actually tease me about this is I will say, hmm, say more about that. And I am so intentional about the energy around it. Like I imagine it's the same energy that when a child walks up to me with a brand new toy, and I want to be curious, like, oh, where did you get that? This is so cute, right? <laughs> like I like to use that energy because what happens is people really pick up on your curiosity and they are less likely to be offended and more likely to try to offer you answers. We love to give folks answers. And so <laughs> when you're going to speak up, you know, use a tactic that is going to like allow you to turn that, amplify that curiosity a bit so that you can drive some additional conversation. When you are pushing back, when it's a this is not okay and I need you to know right away, you can still do that, like amplify the energy that you use behind it. So, you know, maybe it's I find what you said inappropriate and offensive. I'd like to tell you why. Right. The tone I said that in is very different than if I say I find what you said inappropriate and offensive. I'd like to tell you why. Right. Like just that shifting of your body language can help to drive a dialogue that's going to be more purposeful and cause someone to be inquisitive and open to a conversation versus not. Um, and you're right, like that, you know, speaking up part, um, is kind of like, it's foundational. It's how allyship works. You're going to speak up when you see things at work, you're going to speak up when you see things happen to other people. And so I think it's really practicing how to position your tone. um, and also having a couple of those go-to questions in your pocket to help you do it.
1: Now help me process that in the context of power when we're the person with power and when we're the person without power.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we are often in positions where power dynamics shift. So if you are, for example, the only woman at a table full of men, um, you are probably the person that is going to feel the least amount of power in that space, right? Unless you have like some kind of job title that makes you like the one everyone has to listen to, right? And so, you know, and that happens sometimes, thankfully, we're living in a world where women are running things. So, but you know, let's say you're, you know, the only woman in a room. And so it can feel really challenging for you to speak up. Um, you know, you, there's a couple things that you want to employ. First, you want to use questions because questions kind of encourage people to get to their own recognition. Um, and we want we want to also realize if we are the person where we notice that there is an only. So there's an only black person, there's an only woman, there's an o- you know one person in the room that you know represents some sort of identity that we are powerful. Like I've got the power right now. So I need to be the person that speaks up. You know, I, I think in the book I compare it to like being in a classroom you know, the children don't have the power in that classroom. That teacher gets to grade how they want, they decide what the assignments are, they assess. And so essentially, if like things were not fair, it'd be like a really big deal for like students to get a teacher kicked out of a school, right? And because, you know, that may feel like the teacher lost power, we have to remember that that teacher is going to hop along and go to another place and find another place to teach, whereas those students you know, have to do a lot to get that teacher out, right? They're the ones that don't have the power. And so power dynamics matter a lot, particularly around speaking up because sometimes people don't speak up because they're like, oh, I'm powerless here. And if I say something, you're gonna see me as, you know, the bossy woman or the angry black woman or the whatever, right? And so we have to recognize sometimes as allies, if you're on your allyship journey, when really, oh, I saw that happen to her, but she can't really speak up without being seen away. And so then we wanna step in with our good curious questions, our good speak up energy, so that we can kind of you know push the conversation forward and protect that identity, right? Welcome, value, seen, safe, heard. Oh, wow, she can't feel that. There's no way she's gonna be able to speak up. Let me do it, because I've got the power in this space. And so this is a part of allyship too, is being able to like make an observation about who has the power in the room, And also putting our allies in the position to recognize, hey, you've got the power in the room. (laughs) You know, I need you to actually do the labor of speaking up sometime.
1: So I want to take a half a step back and talk about um, words that relate to roles and how they're similar and different. And in particular, when are we being, what's the difference between being an ally and an advocate? Yeah,
0: yeah. And if you Um, could
1: kind of anchor it from that room on out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the difference between being an ally and an advocate is really simple. When you're thinking about allyship, I'm thinking about, I want to get to know this person who's different than me, who experiences privilege and power different than I do so that I can extend my privilege and power to that person. And so in what ways do I experience the world in a way that they do not? And like, how can I you know, potentially bring them along and invite them in to have a more meaningful experience? It's about the person advocacy which is sometimes called accomplishment ship right but in okay. business spaces we tend to use advocacy because it sounds a little less criminal and so <laughs> um you know but it, this is when we are thinking about the system and so when you're being an advocate what you're doing is saying this system works for me but it does not work for these folks and so therefore we need to change it this is inequitable for these people i want to protect someone from experiencing discomfort or mistreatment because they have to Deal with this system, and so it's the the difference of am I dealing with the folks or am I dealing with the systems that are pushing against the folks? That's really the difference between allyship and advocacy. And honestly, I like to make sure people understand that these are not like stair steps. Like it's not like you're an ally first and then you're an advocate. Like there are going to be times where you're both. There are going to be times where you're one or the other. Um, and there are going to be times when you are just one. You know, and so it's it it just depends on the circumstance that. Which way is the most responsible and impactful way to show up? And I tried to make sure in the book, I give you perspective around like, first, what do these words mean? But also, how do your actions bring them to life, right? How do I actually advocate? So an advocate circumstance might be something that says, I'm not sure that we're being considerate of all the identities here if we take that approach, right? That's an advocate action. Versus an ally might do something like, I noticed that the way that this was handled isn't really equitable. Can you help me understand, you know, what's happening here, right? I'm trying to connect to you because what I experienced when I went through that process was one thing, but what you're saying is something else. I need to understand that, right? So I can perhaps extend my privilege to you so you get the same access that i have and so they're really close but they work together so
1: i have a specific question and i know we're going to run short on time i also want to make time to learn about um the work you're doing in the arts and your volunteer work but yeah as a manager particularly a mid-level manager Mm -hmm. you're kind of at an intersection of power and privilege in some ways and it's one thing in a group setting to figure out how to amplify somebody else, how to protect somebody else, how to reinforce someone's voice. How as managers do we make a safe place for people to bring to us their concerns when they don't feel safe doing it in a group setting?
0: yeah ask <laughs> um ask and create an environment where people feel like they can share it with you so an ideal environment is not to say oh you told me that really impactful story about your experience can you tell it to the group like that's not useful you want to make sure that you're creating a space that people feel like you can you know build a meaningful connection privately Um, because a lot of things about identity are really private. Like even think about your own identity. There are things about your identity that are private. And so if you want someone to have an understanding, that's one thing that doesn't mean you want it to be like everyone's business. Right. And so you, you can ask, (laughs) you know, that's the biggest part a manager can do is like, you know, if you're not sure, just ask the question, Hey, I'd like to, you know, build some meaningful connection here. Um, Is there some time we can sit down and talk? I'd like to understand what your experience has been, blah, blah, blah. Like, let's, get together and have some meaningful conversation so yeah you have to you have to ask (laughs) and that's, that's not always the natural approach we think that you know as managers people will come to us with their concerns but we've got to put ourselves in the position to be approachable the other thing is you've got a role model that you're interested in this stuff you know you've got a role model that you will speak up when it's not right because people will see that and then they'll say okay I can go to this person and have some conversation because I've seen them actually action as an ally
1: so by opening up, making safe, starting by making a safe place, yeah. inviting the conversation, opening up and really listening, and yep. then taking what we learn and putting it to use, we're yeah. taking some steps forward.
0: Yes, all of which can be uncomfortable, by the way, but it's so important to help. You know, all of us kind of carry, carry the load of, you know, just this allyship journey.
1: Amber, we of course ran out of time before I could talk to you about everything I wanted to learn from you. Thank you so much for joining us today. How can listeners find out more about you and the book?
0: Yes, so you can find out more about me by going to ambercabral.com. You can also learn about the book there. Um, If you're interested in just the book, you can go to alliesandadvocates.com.
1: And what about Brown Girls Do, which deserves some airtime and I didn't get
0: there. That's okay. So I chair a wonderful organization called Brown Girls Do. Most people know it as Brown Girls Do Ballet. The best place to probably check them out is to go to either browngirlsdoballet.com or to go to our Instagram. Our Instagram is a huge, beautiful, wonderful place. Um, So go ahead and check it out at Brown Girls Do Ballet.
1: Amber, thank you so much for all of it.
0: Yeah, of course.
1: And thank you all for listening today. If you have a question about anything you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. And our full catalog of past shows are available wherever you get your podcast. Just search on Women at Work and Laura Zarrow and you'll find us. Many thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio channel 132, powered by the Wharton School. Go forth and be brave, folks. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.